Welcome to episode 48 of Talking Wild Madness. This is Adam. And we are kind of in the middle of what sounds like a building site. Uh, I am still at my parents' house. And I've just gotten news that uh, the people who are in my house need to stay there for two more weeks. So I've now been uh, in quotation marks homeless for... Uh, it'll be coming on three months, four months. So I spent a couple of uh, months traveling and then I've come back and now I'm here, still here in my in my parents' house with my children as a 40-year-old man. And it's wonderful. It's, uh, it's half past 12 in the afternoon and I've converted one of the uh, one of the bedrooms into an office. And my father, who's retired and has been retired for five or six years, has decided that he wants to come out of retirement to give himself something to do. So he has, uh, he's now, he's now employed as a truck driver, uh, sorry, a tow truck driver. And his new gig is, uh, he has this giant tow truck that's parked outside of the house that takes up the entire driveway. And he's now pressure cleaning it outside. So, Every now and then, uh, yeah, you might hear some a lot of machinery uh, burst into life and uh, maybe some engines and whatnot. Uh, but that's, that's that's what it is. It's my uh, he's 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 come out of retirement, like like a great fighter who uh, who just has the itch who, who couldn't couldn't hang the gloves up. Um, there's one fighter in the UFC called BJ Penn, and his nickname when he was fighting was uh, the Prodigy. The prodigy, the prodigy, because he was so good at learning different kinds of martial arts, and he went on a tear, and he was he was feared as one of the greatest mixed martial artists ever, and he was one of these guys that couldn't leave, couldn't hang the gloves up for good, and he kept coming back out of retirement again and again and again, and I think he's now on a seven fight losing streak uh, because he just needs to get back in there. So my dad's kind of like BJ Penn, but without the violence and without, I think BJ Penn was last seen getting into a street fight outside a bar in Hawaii, which he lost to, uh, he's a lightweight fighter, I think. So he's like, what's 155 pounds? In kilograms, I don't know. I'm not sure. What is that? Seventy kilos? No, sixty-five kilos. And he was picking a fight with this huge dude, and he stuck his chin out and told the guy to punch him, and the guy did punch him, and BJ Penn literally just fell asleep out in the car park, and it was like a Tuesday night. So poor old BJ is not doing very well. He's uh, cobbling his life together outside of fighting i'd say it's a rough it's a rough path to uh to retirement so that's anyway that's the update of, of what's happening uh, there's a fairly big weekend coming up there's a house concert that i'm playing at uh in at hainault winery which is in the bickley valley in perth in the hills or in between the hills if it's in the bickley valley uh, so if you happen to be in Perth or you happen to be around the area, it, it should be a really nice, 
that should be a really nice uh, uh, gig. I think I think the door opens at about five. It's a house attached to a to a winery, uh, and I think the gig starts at six, and then it's going to end at about eight o'clock. And I last time we've always played at the winery itself, but so this is the first time there's a house concert. So I'd imagine there's going to be. Uh, Lynn and Michael do really amazing food up there so you can go and get a I think you can bring your own food but you can't bring your own wine uh, so they've got platters of, 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 of platters of food but you have but but you have to buy the wine there and I'll have my books there for sale and I'll have some CDs there for sale too uh, I'll have bird there I just got a delivery from the editor over east and they've dropped about 50 books on the on the doorstep in, in individual little packets. Uh, so, yeah, I'll have them for sale, which will be cool. And then on the Sunday, there is another gig at the Noble Falls Tavern, which starts at 1 o'clock, and that'll, go till, that'll probably go till the, till the late afternoon, maybe 4 o'clock. And that's playing a two-piece with Lachlan Gurr, Lachlan is the mandolin player that I played with a few weeks ago for the first time, and he was really, really brilliant. I usually play with a musician called John Edwards, who's, I think I've talked about John before on the podcast. He's an incredible musician. And Lachlan's probably the only musician in 12 years that's come close to what John's able to do and be able to do it without rehearsing. So it was, was, um, and the reason I needed to, work with Lachlan is because John is so good, he gets booked up a lot. So every now and then, John can't make uh, the gigs that I have for him. So it was great. It was great to meet another another musician who knows what they're doing. I'm not the other musician who knows what they're doing. John, let's be very clear about that. John knows exactly what he's doing, and so does Lachlan. So it's there's, there's an old phrase, old saying, to surround yourself with people better than than you, um, that's that's basically been the secret of of my uh, of my professional musical uh, career is to do that, do exactly that, and have have people around you who are far better at what they do than than you are at what you do, and it seems to work. There's another saying: if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. There's another, there's a Japanese saying that a man is the room that he's in, which I thought was really nice. I think I heard that from Mad Men, actually, the, the season. If you haven't seen Mad Men, it is definitely worth a watch. I know it's been out for about 15 years. I know I'm not saying anything very new, but uh, yeah, if you get a chance to, if you, if you have six seasons worth of television spare in your life to watch, uh, which I don't anymore. But if you happen to, if you do, uh, I would recommend Mad Men. I would also recommend Deadwood. I would definitely recommend The Sopranos, and I would recommend Six Feet Under if anybody was interested. Um, and then on Tuesdays, Tuesday is St Patrick's Day, and on Tuesday I'm playing at the Island Brew House, and that's with the three piece. That's with. Uh, Lachlan again and with Warren Hall who's an incredible drummer so yeah that's all that's happening in between Sunday and Tuesday I have to drive back to Albany because I have to teach the university classes have started up again so I have to come back on Monday to teach the creative writing class and then I have to go back up on Tuesday 
to um, to play that to play the Patrick's Day gig. So there's going to be a bit of driving, a few miles uh, done. But man, I have to say this year has been really good for being able to make a living in a non-traditional way. So I'm just kind of looking at the miles that I have to do every now and then as kind of the price that I have to pay in order to enjoy the freedom that I have um, being able to being able to work at these different things. So I'm very grateful for that. And, and I've been playing movies through the iPad while I'm driving. Now I'm not watching the movies while I'm driving. I'm just listening to the movies while I'm driving. And I found that to be really, it, it's very interesting. It changes, I might not be saying anything new here, but it, it, well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't preface that sentence because that's, I could probably preference every sentence with that. Um, but it really changes the way you take a movie in when you're just listening to it. And the movie I was listening to, I had, what was I, I had The Godfather on. Now I've seen The Godfather a million times and it's one of those comfort movies. It's one of those movies you, you almost eat when when you're watching it. Uh, it has a, a marvellous balance of nostalgia and romance and masculinity and uh, and family to it. So it's for all, for a for a thousand more reasons, it's it's definitely an incredible rewatchable film for me. But I'd never just listened to it before, and it was quite interesting because what stood out was how simple the story was in in The Godfather, and it, it wasn't um, it wasn't when I th- when I was thinking of it. You know, it's almost operatic, and it, and it seemed to be really, really complex. But in reality, and I and I'm only clicked onto this because of of listening to it. It, it really is a, a very, very simple story. That the first half an hour of the film is basically an, an exposition of you're introduced to all the characters, you're introduced to the to the family, so to speak. And you, you see the, the godfather, obviously, is the, uh, is the patriarch. And then you meet the different kinds of brothers. You, you meet the, the partners of the brothers and the sister. And you see them in there. You see them at the wedding at the beginning. And that goes on for quite a while. But there's nothing really going on. Uh, if you were to look at it from a plot perspective, there's not a, a terrible amount uh, going on. And then I think... I don't know if it's exactly half an hour in, but then the drug dealer Solozzo is introduced and he is the first person to, to introduce the then mafia to the possibility of how much money they could make uh, selling, selling drugs. Because before, I think it's 1946, it's set in. I, I think, uh, or it might even be 1940, it might be, it might be just after the end of the war. So the mafia was at that time dealing in prostitution and gambling mainly and, uh, and loan sharking, lending, lending out money. And narcotics was, it wasn't on the scene and it was introduced to the mob as in the film anyway. I don't know how historically true it is. So Solazzo comes to town and basically says, who wants to get rich? I'm I'm the man in town, and uh, 
And some of the families, there's five mafia families in New York. Some of the families say, yep, we want to get into this narcotics business. And the, 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 the Corleone family, who's the, who, who listened to me explaining the Godfather, like no one's ever seen it. But the Corleone family, the, the head of the family says, no, I don't want to get involved in, in narcotics. And then that triggers off basically the rest of the film because there's an assassination attempt on the head of the Corleone family because they didn't want to get into the drugs business. And then there's a, a, there's a, a short war between the families. Then all the f- mafia families reconcile. Um, and that's kind of it. And then, and then the movie, the movie ends as there's the, the, the Godfather dies and the transfer of power goes to Al Pacino's character. And it was just, yeah, it was, it was very, very interesting just listening. And I, I suppose you don't get distracted by, by all the visuals and you just really get to distill the piece or the story or the film into into its raw element. It was kind of like listening to a really in-depth, really well-produced radio play. So I don't know. I might have to do Godfather Godfather 2 on, on the way back. Um, the other one I did was the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, I list, just listened to that, and that was a super emotional uh, experience. I remember that that that, that was a uh, that was a very very intense listen. It's probably because because uh, you have earphones in. It's probably because Morgan Freeman's whispering into your ear at an insanely intimate level as opposed to sitting down watching a TV screen or a, or a projector screen. Yeah, so I, maybe maybe if you had, it was probably like sleeping next to Morgan Freeman. It was, you know, having him try and try and warm you up to make love to you, whispering all <laughs> the things that he might whisper to you. Anyway, I, I, yeah, I found it a, a quite moving experience. So what else is happening? Uh, I met a man last week who was involved in I didn't actually know this but apparently in around 19 oh my lord I really should check the date might have been around about the same time that the Godfather was set in I think it was 1946 or it might have been 1953 Uh, and he was on board a ship as a sailor as part of the navy and they tested nuclear bombs on Montebello Island, which is right at the top of, just off the top coast of northwestern Australia. And this man is now 83 years old. And he literally stood on board the ship. They were parked seven, I think he said seven miles away from the detonation zone. And the government just put them there to see what would happen to people in front of an atomic blast. And he saw a he saw the mushroom cloud. And he said that the mushroom cloud he said they were all ordered to line up on on top on the deck of the ship and they were told to turn around while the actual de- while the while the atomic bomb was detonated. They were told to turn turn away from it. So they had their backs to, to the bomb and they, they were told not to turn around until 10 seconds and then they were allowed to turn around and 
he was able to describe what the mushroom cloud looked like as it grew out of the earth that they had just exploded. And then he said that the, uh, the, the army or the navy had misjudged the direction of the, of the, of the wind. And then the mushroom cloud, basically, the, I don't know if you'd call it the rim of the mushroom cloud, but it, it travelled over, it travelled towards them over the ship. So, it, and then he said, and it, then it blew uh, across most of Western Australia uh, because the wind just just carried uh, the wind just carried all the radiation uh, in the wrong direction, which could describe uh, what's happening with the toilet paper situation. Actually, just thinking of that. So what he has asked me to do, and, uh, and I'm, I've got to put a submission together, and he's submitting it to the federal government, because if you serve in the Australian army overseas in, during, during war, uh, when you get home, you're given what's called a gold card. And a gold card basically gives you free medical uh, for the rest of your life. And if you serve overseas uh, during war, your gold card can, your, is also can be used by your partner. So if you were in World War II or if you were in Vietnam and you come home and then you, you're basically taken care of and your partner's taken care of. I'm not sure if it extends to your children or not, but I know your, your partners are taken care of. Now, this man that I spoke to didn't technically serve overseas. So his gold card that he got is only really for himself. And when he passes away, his widow that he leaves behind, should should that be the situation, won't be able to use that gold card. So that gold card is only for him. And obviously as an 83 year old man, he is he is concerned about his wife being looked after once he goes if it works out that way if if he if he goes first so his argument is that being put in front of a atomic blast essentially being used as a human test lab rat should be recognized similarly to serving overseas and being in a, a theater of war, so to speak. And I have to say, I completely, completely agree. So we're going to try and, uh, and put a submission together. They're called submissions and it has to go to the federal, uh, the federal government. So if anybody has any, uh, if anybody has any contacts or connections, or if anyone has anything that they think might be helpful or useful, uh, please get in, get in contact and, uh, and let me know. Because if it can help, if it can help this man that I spoke to, but also if it can help, I think he said there were sixty-five surviving men left from from that experiment, and I, or that number might include the partners of those men as well. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if if, uh, if we can get that over the line for him. So other than that, I've been for some reason. I've been watching a lot of Julia Child videos uh, on on YouTube, and Julia Child. If anybody doesn't know who Julia Child is, she was uh, one of the first t- 
TV personality shifts. And she was, she was certainly one of the first female uh, celebrity chefs. Uh, by the looks of these videos, it looks like she was around in the, in the early 80s, maybe the late 70s. No, it kind of looks early 80s. It reminds me, her kitchen setup reminds me very, very much of the kitchen setup that I grew up in, uh, watching my, my mother in action in Ireland in 1983 or 4 or 5. Although... Maybe what they had in Ireland in 1985, they might have had in America in 1975. Who knows? I don't know. My mother wasn't a great cook, I have to say, uh, when when we were growing up. She's now an excellent cook. She learned to cook after everyone left home. Although I'm back living at home now for the last three weeks, four weeks. So there's, there's plenty, there's a lot of circular irony going on there. But I, I, anyway, so... Last night I cooked a curry from a Julia Child's recipe that I that I found, and tomorrow I'm going to try a cockavin, which is the chicken in red wine. Because Julia Child is a she's like a, fr- a fine French cuisine uh, chef, or that that that's her uh, that that seems to be her um, seems to be her bag. There's a very good film with Meryl Streep playing Julia Child came out a few years ago. This podcast is, is turning into uh, historical films. You've probably already seen uh, Adam gets to talk about, um, but there's a great film. Yeah. It's, I think it's called Jul- Julia and Julie or Julia and Julia. And it's about a late 20 something, uh, late 20 something New York woman who attempts to recreate all the uh, attempts to recreate all the recipes that Julia Childs had uh, had had made had made famous in her in her books. And I think she cooks one dish every single day in the movie. I, I, I saw it a few years ago, but very very expensive, uh, very very expensive. And not that I'm I'm quite, I'm not getting one dish in every night, but uh, yeah. A couple of times a week, I'll give this old school uh, French French uh, cooking a go. It seems to be going well so far, even though the curry wasn't exactly French, but the curry turned out really, really excellent. She does make some pretty uh, f- uh, fruity, and not fruity as in the actual fruit, but some pretty bizarre uh, things. She, she was making a pâté which had... Uh, 300 grams of veal mince, 300 grams of pork mince, and then 300 grams of just pork fat, just like like uh, yeah, like pork lard, and that all got mixed together, and, and then she wrapped it in pork skin, really really thin. Uh, yeah, I don't. Well, it's just skin, isn't it? And then she turned that into a terrine, like a pate terrine, and that got baked in the oven and. And then she made this insane fish mousse that was a big ring about the size of a pizza and it was maybe five or six inches high. So it was this giant white creamy uh, donut looking thing the size of a pizza. And in the middle of the hole, she poured this creamy pink lobster uh, bisque that she that she had made uh, 
And uh, yeah, it just looked like it looked like people ate very well. If like if that was if that was the order of the day back in the back in the early eighties, if that's what people were making, um, man, it's a it's a miracle anybody is still still around. Uh, she did she did chicken breasts poached in butter, where she actually poached well as it says she actually poached everything in butter, and then made a, a cream and parsley sauce to go over the top of of the chicken poached in butter. Uh, just incredible, incredible decadence, admirable decadence. I have to say, absolutely admirable decadence. Uh, now, oh, my sister sent me an email today telling me that the Tasmanian Art Festival, Dark Mofo, has been cancelled. And it, it was it was cancelled due to coronavirus. So we should probably have an up, a coronavirus update, Talking Wild Madness coronavirus update as, as we go along. Um Dark Mofo is it, it, it's the owner of Mona, the art the art gallery exhibition space uh, that I talked talked about a few podcasts ago. So once a year they have what's called Dark Mofo, which is a winter uh, festival where all different parts around Hobart turn into really quite outlandish. Uh, bizarre theater experiments, art projects. One of the one of the latest ones was you. It was called Dinner of Death or something like that, and you paid a substantial amount of money to go and sit at a table. I think it was about one hundred and sixty dollars. Knowing David Walsh, the guy who runs it, it might have been four hundred and sixty dollars. And but you sat at the table and you were basically fed food that was made from uh, feral animals that had been caught, that had been killed and, and obviously butchered. So you would eat, say, a pate made out of cats or you would have uh, cane toad legs. Uh, I, I can't remember all the dishes, but I remember the one that really stood out was was the feral cat. They'd, they'd made some kind of moose or something out of a, out of a cat and you were basically eating... You were eating what the what the colonizers introduced and ended up has has ended up eating all the native animals in in Australia. So I think it's important to have things like Mona and Dark Mofo to have that kind of to have that in people's heads. Just it's like whispering in their ear, just to say, "Hey, just don't forget about this stuff." Or hey, you should think about this idea. This is this is something interesting, and I and I do think it lifts the collective psychology of uh, of a nation, or even of a city, or even of of a you know of a whatever. They had uh, what? What they? They brought out the Dark Queen to flip the coin at an AFL game that they played in Hobart. Because I think is it Hawthorne plays a few games in Hobart with some deal that they did with, with the Hobart government. So I think three or four times a year, the Hawthorne Football Club travelled to Hobart to host a home game in Hobart. And at one of these games, they had the the Red Queen. The Red Queen is this ghoulish kind of New Orleans, uh, 
death mask witch and she's about seven or eight feet tall and she has uh, like a zombie black face and very, very long red hair that goes all the way down, down, her, down her back. So they had this, and it was very interesting to see it in, you, you can see it on, uh, on YouTube. Tom sent me a clip of it from, from, he was looking at it for some reason in Germany. Uh, you can you can see the Red Queen walk out into this football game and flip the coin, and it was it was like the antithesis of the football game to have something like that in in that in the uh, in that in that setting of that of charged hyper masculinity and uh, and celebrity and uh, all the fans and then to have this freakish creature come out and flip there yeah, and, and, and flip a coin, which is also interesting because David Walsh made most of his money out of gambling. So it was interesting. It's interesting to make a few of those connections. So Dark Mofo this year is not happening, uh, which means a lot of artists who are going to go and perform there, we're going to play there. A lot of musicians are also are not going. Uh, and I think that's fairly, I don't know if I'm more worried about the fact that 60 million Italians can now no longer go to eat out at restaurants. Apparently the restaurants in Italy in Italy has now closed. The borders in Italy have now closed. I don't know if I'm more concerned that the Italians can't go out for their uh, penne Alfredo or if I'm more concerned about the fact that David Walsh just cancelled Dark Mofo, but it is certainly it is it is food it is food for thought. I saw a really cool uh, post today of someone who said just help flatten the curve, uh, and and it was a graph that showed the start date of of the coronavirus outbreak, and then the graph went all the way up, and it was an imaginary number, and then there was just a post saying you know wash your hands, cover your mouth. It's an airborne uh, virus, and it's something that just has to be endured, and something that uh, we will all survive—not all survive, obviously—but it's something that the world will survive and get through, and just try and minimize that that curve so that bell curve doesn't go too high. Let's try and flatten the curve out as much as you can. And I thought that was really—that's really. I hope I'm—I hope I'm explaining that. So instead of it looking like Mount Kilimanjaro or Mount Fuji, try and get it to look like uh, the little hill, a little sand dune. So that death, the death count is not really high. The death count's low. Uh, and and in a sense, I think that's a really that's an awesome way to approach almost everything uh, in in life. You're, you're you're obviously you're not guaranteed anything other than other than death, but even death as we know it as an experience that ends life. We don't even actually know if that's the case. We don't know if death is an end point or if it's a transitional point. And obviously some people are very convinced it's it's either, it's one or the other, but ultimately no one really knows. But ultimately, yeah, ultimately no one, no one knows. So we're not even really, we're not even guaranteed death. We're not guaranteed an end to consciousness at all. 
this thing could just keep going. The light at the end of the tunnel could be uh, the vaginal opening of your next life. Very possibly. That's very frightening. And and the uh, and the and apologies for being slightly vulgar, but that that light at the end of the tunnel, which is the vaginal opening of your next existence, that that vaginal opening might belong to uh, a, a quokka, or a water buffalo, or a fill in fill in the blank. Who knows? That could be yeah the wife of, of, a, of a sultan in Saudi Arabia or a, a pizza chef who's out of work in Milan's wife, or maybe the wife is the pizza chef, or maybe the single mother in Milan is, this, is, this, is the pizza chef because her husband just died of coronavirus and you have an accident tomorrow and get run over by a car and the light of the tunnel, You're, you, you, you get born as a little Italian baby in an Italian, in a, a Roman hospital that's full of coronavirus and that could just go on and on and on forever and ever and ever. Oh, I don't know which one would be worse. That idea of absolute immortality or death. Yeah. Which one, if you were, if you were given a choice, I feel like I'm speaking quite fast at the, today and it's because of the coffee. Usually when I make a pot of coffee, I put in four teaspoons of coffee, but that's way too weak for my mother. So she puts in four tablespoons of coffee. So every time I've been making coffee since I've been here, I'm, I'm putting in four uh, uh, tablespoons instead of teaspoons. And I honestly feel absolutely wired. I feel, I don't know if it's coming across that way, but I feel like I'm talking as fast as Martin Scorsese talks. I feel like I'm actually having to stop to breathe. Maybe it's the coronavirus. Hopefully it isn't. Ah, wow. Um, my legs are my legs are like uh, moving rapidly up and down, bouncing on my feet. And I'm starting to sweat. Oh. Okay. Maybe it was the maybe it was all the thoughts of, of the vaginal openings. Maybe you need to uh, maybe need to cool off on that. Uh, so yeah, dark mofo is cancelled. Uh, apparently, toilet paper is returning to the to the shops. I had to go down. I went. I went to the shops yesterday to buy the ingredients for the uh, for the curry, the chicken curry that I made. And as I was leaving, I asked my uh, mother if I can get her anything. Do you need anything from the shops? And she said, "Yeah, we need toilet paper." And I, I, I think I. I was actually really self-conscious buying the toilet paper because I thought, oh, man, people are going to think I'm one of them. People are going to think I'm, I'm one of these weirdos who is um, stockpiling. But when I got there anyway, they have signs up now. You're only allowed to buy one. And the choices are down. To, there's like two choices now. They're, uh, where they normally put the toilet paper here in Albany is still pretty much empty. Uh, of the 100% of shelf space available, uh, hitherto available, hitherto available, not hitherto available, of the shelf space previously being used for toilet paper storage, about 
10% of it is actually now being used for toilet paper and the rest is still empty. And they had a pallet, a wooden pallet with toilet paper on it uh, that had been like half, half, uh, half purchased at, at the back of the store as well. So, but there's only two choices. And then I was listening to Radio National this morning and Fran Kelly, Fran Kelly does a show on Radio National in the morning. And Fran, if you're listening, I apologize, but it's the worst show on Radio National. Radio National says it is the net, the uh, ideas station, the network, ideas network. And it normally is. And you get the philosophy programs and the, and the, uh, and the psychology programs and the design programs and you just get the music show and the science show and the health report and you get all these really, really interesting, fascinating, uh, fascinating programs that throw ideas out at you, much like Dark Mofo, much like the, the, the Red Queen flipping the coin, like she was playing a, a, a single coin version of Two Up in the middle of of Hawthorne versus whoever else they were hosting in, in uh, Hobart. Uh, but Frank Kelly's show, it's all just about the soap opera of, of politics. And it's kind of the same every single morning. It's kind of exactly the same. And you can almost, I don't know if she's been doing it too long. I think she works at Melbourne University as well as a, I don't know what she teaches over there, but you can kind of feel, you can hear the jadedness in her voice a little bit, like she knows it as well. It's like, ah, I'm just basically, I'm asking the same questions and just changing the name every every day here, aren't I? Yes, Fran Kelly, you are. Oh, man. Fran, if you're listening, I'm sorry. But, uh, yeah. And she had uh, she had a guy who was in charge of the manufacturers who sent toilet paper to the, to the, to the shops. And he was like this behind the scenes wizard of Oz character. And she was asking him all about the, the mysteries of manufacturing in Australia and who does it. And, uh, and I found out that the toilet paper is mainly manufactured in Australia. A hand sanitizer is um, made in Australia, but not exclusively. A lot of hand sanitizer is imported. And one of the things this man was saying was that there was going to be a reduction in choice. So there wouldn't necessarily be a, uh, there wouldn't necessarily be no products, but instead of 15 different choices of razor blades or toothpaste or dog food, you might be down to two choices of, of toothpaste or razor blades or whatever. And I thought that's actually maybe a really good thing. I, I don't think that would, um, I don't think that would hurt at all. I think that, that could actually be quite nice. Uh, I think there's a, there's a decadence like the like the fish moose with the with this with the salmon bisque in the middle the lobster bisque in the middle there there is a yeah there's there's a decadence and an overindulgence there's this this commodification almost like a pornographic level of choice with everything uh and i don't know if that's a good thing for people to 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 have 
I think that that makes people extraordinarily entitled. Uh, and, and because it exists in an arena that is mundane or that is seemingly mundane, so you go to the grocery store, it's something that you have to do on a regular basis. It's part of your everyday, everyday life. And yet when you go to buy your soft cheese, there is literally 20 different soft cheeses to choose from. There's probably actually more. There's, there's, there's dozens of different brands and then each brand has half a dozen selections of soft cheese. And that's just been completely normalized for us. That not only do we have an abundance, we have an abundance within the abundance. And I don't know if the little human brain is is capable of dealing with so much abundance. And I think it's the same not just for not just for products, but I think it's the same for um, I think it's the same for relationships. I think if you are you the the, the maximum the, not the maximum the dazzling array of choice and opportunity in so many things in life, I think is, is, can be extraordinarily overwhelming and distracting at the same time. And it's, it's something, I mean, I, I do it myself. I feel different if I, if I spend the extra $3 and buy the fancier razors rather than the, the cheaper ones. It changes, and maybe it's because I'm extraordinarily shallow, but it literally changes how you walk out of the shop, depending on the brand of stuff that you have in your in your super in your in your in your trolley or whatever. And I don't think that makes me a bad person. I just think that makes me human, uh, and I I think that that I think that might be something worth worthwhile to whittle out of the evolutionary. Uh, nature to, to, to flush out that would be something to that would be something if dealt if dealt with properly I think could be very beneficial to not change who you think you are in relation to other people by the things that you can afford or the choices that you are able to make in all things <laughs>